Educating all of us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Across the United States, there are a growing number of people who, armed with their knowledge and a camera, are going into public spaces, whether it's a city hall or a post office or a library, and trying to make sure that police and other public servants are held accountable, accountable to all of our rights under the Constitution. Well, one of the most popular and successful of these educators is known as Long Island Audit. His name is Sean Paul Reyes. We have featured his battle against corruption in Danbury. Connecticut on our TYT channel, Rebel HQ. And we're so pleased to have Sean with us now. Sean, welcome to the conversation. Hey, thank you, David. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. So, right off the bat, I guess my first question is what prompted you to get into this, what's known as constitutional auditing, First Amendment auditing, and, and how did you get involved? Okay, so about, you know, I've been watching the auditing community for about, you know, five years now. And um, like everybody else, I have. You know, seen witness police corruption on corporate media, you know, mainstream media, um, as well as you know, just all the corruption, you know, the the police shootings, all, all those things that are happening in the world today. But what I've noticed by watching the auditing community is that you know, there's a lot of corruption and police brutality and corruption by city officials and public servants that doesn't get highlighted in the media. And also, you know, there's the auditing community; they're very you know, there can be seen as agitators and seen as, you know, disrespectful. So I wanted to get out there and change that narrative and change the way people thought of us and be respectful and see what kind of response I got. And my first day out with the camera, David, you know, I, I decided to go try this out in March and, you know, I got a really bad response and they treated me very disrespectfully. And, you know, they, it, it was a horrible experience for me and I, it motivated me to keep going and keep exposing corruption. Well, one of the things, one of the things that clearly sets you apart, I think, is that you are extremely calm and almost soft-spoken. Even yeah. I mean, we show in one of the videos, you go to the Danbury Public Library. All of a sudden, five police officers arrive. They're making all sorts of threats. One of them actually was caught on a body camera saying that he would have killed you 20 years ago. But in the face of all of this, you're able to just stay calm and, and stay matter of fact. How do you do that? You know, David, I, I see myself as, you know, I see the bigger picture. I can let my emotions get involved and, 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 you know, I get angry just like everybody else who are watching these videos, especially in the moment. You know, 20 years ago, I would have been dead. That's, that's so scary. But, you know, I try and stay calm, take a deep breath, you know, realize there's a bigger picture to this. And the corruption runs so deep into the court system, as you know, David, that, you know, we need to, I need to make myself as calm as possible because any little thing that I do, in reaction to the police officers or the public servants, they're gonna use against me in court and call me an agitator. So I make it very clear that I'm not. And one of the things that I think you're, you're especially good at is you're also very witty and you underscore in a very sort of soft <laughs> way that you're not a pushover. And in one of the videos you refer to the police officer say, hey, Tibbets, and he says, it's officer Tibbets. And you're like, hey, Tibbets, and then you ask <laughs> a question. And it seemed to me as sort of a, a sort of a funny reminder that I think a lot of us have forgotten that these people, they work for us. And it almost feels like in our society, we have forgotten that. Yeah, David, you know, it's, it's, I like witty banter, you know, with police officers. If, if they're a little bit sarcastic with me and, you know, I have no problem with that. And, you know, I tend to, you know, give them leeway, but they do need to understand, David, that they do work for us. Every time, every city hall I go to, I look at their budgets, you know, I see how much they're in debt. You know, I, I, I try and do like more than just, I don't go in there do with just a camera and just to film. I try and, you know, get services, do FOIA requests. And on top of all the organizational charts for the city, it's the residents of that city. 
And they seem to forget that. And that's very important. And, you know, we have to underscore that, you know, they're public servants. They're here to protect and serve us, provide us with services. You know, we pay a lot in taxes. Um, so we just have to make sure that we're holding them accountable and we're, we're, we're uh, promoting transparency in our government. One of the things that has jumped out to a lot of people who may not be so familiar with what our constitutional rights are is that if a police officer just asks you, hey, give me your ID, um, you're under no obligation, legal obligation to give that unless they have a what, a reasonable suspicion that you've committed Correct. a crime. Correct, David. You know, they, if you get stopped, you know, just on the street, the only way that you would have to provide your ID to a law enforcement officer if you get stopped for a traffic violation, because they because at that point they do have reasonable, articulable suspicion that you have committed a crime, you're about to commit a crime. So, you know, without that RAS, the reasonable articulable suspicion, there is no law that bounds you to provide your identification to the police officers. You don't want to be in any of those reports that they're writing up. You know, it's it's not a good look for you and you just don't want to the police officers jobs are to enforce the law and they get promotions based on how many arrests and tickets they write. So their best interests are not in us. They're in giving you a ticket, arresting you filling up the jail systems for unnecessary crimes. And you know we have to exercise our rights in a peaceful manner to stop that. I've been surprised, frankly, by the number of times that you go out, even some other auditors as well, where police, sure, there may be one or two who just sort of calm, who sort of understands, but the number of police officers who have seemed to have a chip on their shoulder and, and take this so sort of personally and want to dominate you or, or anybody else, I'm, I'm sort of surprised given where our society is that there's still so much of this that's out there. Yeah, you know, me too. I, you know, when I first started doing auditing and I first started uh, promoting government transparency and accountability, you know, I I went in this with, you know, hey, you know, the majority of cops are, you know, intelligent. You know, they respect our rights. They want to do the right thing. But as I do this more and more, and as I'm out there in in on on the streets and out there in city halls and and police departments, I'm realizing that police officers they 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 don't. The, the majority of them, they do not, I would say even the majority do not care. They, they they don't know the laws. I've run into police officers that don't know what reasonable articulable suspicion is. They think that they can identify you just because they're law enforcement. It's really scary the amount of, you know, uh, how they don't understand the, the law that they swore an oath to protect. Very scary. Yeah, and it almost seems to me, I mean, you know, the, the, the key here is that they should be de-escalating, right? I mean, the best way to get Correct. information out of somebody is to be nice. And it seems like there's something about our police culture where police are sort of trained maybe, or it's part of their culture to dominate somebody. You have to dominate them, you have to take control. And even if that means trampling on their constitutional rights, there is an argument that has been made against auditors in general that, you know, you're catching people off guard, uh, that you're surprising public servants. Um, is there a fair criticism to that? I would say no, because as when you take a job for the public, you should be expected to deal with the public on a daily basis and treat the public with respect and courtesy and assist us. You know, this is why they get paid from our tax dollars, David. And they need to understand that they work for us. You know, I, it doesn't mean that it has to be a, a tumultuous relationship between us. It just means that you have to respect our rights, de-escalate the situation. What you said is very key. It's not only just de-escalation, it's taught in police departments all throughout the United States for a reason, because it's it's for the officer's safety as well. Because if you go in there guns blazing and and, and you start being disrespectful, you don't know who you're in and who, who, who you're running into in this encounter. So it can be very dangerous for them and de-escalation is key and treating people with respect is key. I, I'll tell you what, if I was on camera and I knew somebody was reporting me at my job at a public facility, 
I would be on my best behavior to show that this city, to represent my city, to represent myself, you know, my community, for sure. Some of the uh, communities, though, are sort of doubling down. It seems like on their own corruption. You have a couple legal skirmishes that are out there. What um, for people who right. want to help you? Uh, what can people do who may not live in Connecticut or New Jersey or, or New York? What do people do? Say, hey, I like this Sean Paul Reyes and what he's trying to do <laughs> to educate all of us about the Constitution. How can I help? Well, the the most important way that you can help is, you know, I'm a big uh, supporter of the First Amendment as. As you know, and in the First Amendment, we have the right to redress our grievances to our government. So, you know, sending letters, sending emails, making phone calls to your um, to the to the government, and just because you don't live in the area doesn't mean that it's not your government. We're all part of the same government. Every uh, municipality and village they receive federal tax dollars that we all pay. Or when I go visit these places, you know, I engage and pay taxes on hotels, you know, gas, I go out to dinners. You know, I'm I'm trying to do the what's best for the community. I also have a GoFundMe page that you can look up, Long Island Audit, and that will help my legal defenses because they don't, as you know, David, they're not backing down, and I'm gonna have to fight them with everything I got. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that shaming public servants seems to be one of the only ways it really sort of works. But let's suppose in one of these communities where you've had these battles, and I won't name one in particular, though I have one in mind. But let's suppose that the uh, the police and the state. Uh, a state attorney, the state prosecutor said, you know what? We are humiliated, we are ashamed of what we've done. Clearly we need to retrain people in terms of how to respect First Amendment auditors, to respect people's constitutional rights. Will you help us, the police department, the community, in terms of training our frontline people on how to interact with the public so that everybody is respected? Is that the sort of thing you would agree to do? I would love to do that, David. You know, I, I love to engage in dialogue with with law enforcement and public officials. You know, there's plenty of videos where I it shows me engaging in dialogue and answering their questions. And you know, I would love to do that. Go go to police station to police station and say, hey, listen. And I would highlight them for doing that. And you know, it's it's a lot. People like to highlight the bad cops and 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 bad law enforcement, bad public officials. I also like to highlight the good ones. I've spoken to police chiefs, mayors from from all around the Northeast area, and I'm planning to branch out. Um, to other states as well, but you know it, it's very key to highlight the good ones because at, at times the good police officers and the people who honor our rights, you know, respect our rights and honor their oath to the Constitution, they're scared to go against the grain, the police unions, the um, you know their bosses. So it's very important to highlight them and, and give them, you know, kudos when it's due. Sure. Finally, Sean, real quickly, I know a number of people have praised your camera work is amazing in these videos. What kind of camera <laughs> are you using? Well, I, technically, I use a, I just use a um, Galaxy yeah. Z Fold 2, and I just keep my hands really steady. And I, I love a good shot. I love the way I frame <laughs> it, and I, and I want to make sure it's good for everybody to see for sure. <laughs> well, I would be shaking like a leaf if I was in some of the situations <laughs> that you were in. But you can find him Long Island Audit on YouTube, Sean Paul Reyes. Good luck, Sean, and thanks for being on the conversation. Thank you so much for having me, David. I really appreciate it. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. The 2022 midterms, they will be here before you know it. And already there are some fascinating races that are taking shape. And one of the most interesting, at least that I've seen so far, involves New York's Staten Island, part of New York City. It's the New York 11th Congressional District. It is a district that is held by a freshman incumbent Republican. The challenger, though, is Brittany Ramos de Barros. She's a Democrat, a community organizer, an Army combat veteran, and she joins us now. Brittany, welcome to the conversation. Thanks, David. I'm so excited to be here. 
Yeah, we're excited to have you. You're pretty young, 32 years old. Why now? Why this particular race? Well, one is because we are the leaders we've been waiting for. I really believe that. I had no aspirations to run for office, but several members of my community came to me and asked me to run and said, you know, we not only need to get our Trump endorsed. Uh, Republican, you know, representative out of office. We need to build a real movement here and momentum that is that is exciting. The vast majority of voters and community members here who haven't been engaging with the process, we think because they haven't had candidates that they can really get excited about. So we're looking to change that. I'm going to ask you about your platform in just a moment, but you mentioned Nicole Maliatakis, who is the Republican incumbent. Anything particular about her? I mean, is there any personal dislike for her? Is it just policy wise, simply because of the Trump endorsement that she shouldn't be there? I think even if I personally disliked her, that would be irrelevant. I think that for me, this is always about what's good for our communities. And I think what we have right now is someone who has received thousands and thousands in corporate contributions, very obviously meant to influence her votes on critical committees like the Foreign Relations Committee, the Transportation Committees, etc. Um, you know, as well as developers who have really been adamant in making decisions that are not what our community needs while we see basic infrastructure continue to be neglected communities schools you know facing real funding issues our housing stock having real health issues that aren't being addressed etc um, you know, I think we need someone who is really going to be loyal to the people and make decisions based on what the people need and not these corporate interests and at the end of the day, that doesn't represent her. She's never held a real job outside of politics. She's never, she's had everything handed to her. And yet she shames the families in our communities who are struggling to get by amidst the layered crises that we face. And I think that that's unacceptable for a leader of any party. Your policy platforms include expanding healthcare, expanding public education, improving public education, also more jobs and housing for all. Um, but obviously, Washington sometimes is about priorities. And let's just suppose, suppose you win. Uh, the Democratic leader in the House, suppose it's Nancy Pelosi, she pulls you aside and says, look, which of these is your priority? What's most important and how do we get there? What do we do? What would you say to her? Yeah, my priority is is investing in our communities in in any and all of the ways. I think that that has to happen through a robust community investment package. Similarly to the package that we're seeing be debated right now in Congress, the Build Back Better plan. That's something that's a really good example of the kinds of investment that I would support, that I think we need to be boldly supporting and building upon. Um, but ultimately, I also think that one of the priorities that we have to focus on is campaign finance reform. I think we have to get corporate influence and money out of politics. If we're going to open the door for electing leaders that are actually going to be willing to pass the things that we know are already popular, like Medicare for all, like moving money out of the corporate coffers of defense contractors into the needs of actual veterans and community members of all varieties that need basic things like good housing and jobs and investments in our small businesses, etc. To me, it's all very connected. A lot of this though, a lot of these programs cost money. And one of the arguments that we've heard from centrist Democrats, whether it's you know Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in the in the Senate, and those are Democrats, by the way, or that you might hear from Republicans where you are in Staten Island is, well, we don't have a lot of money, but we have this debt that we have to worry about that we can't keep making the debt larger. What do you say to those Republicans, to your own constituents who have that concern? 
Yeah, well, first I would say all of those people just voted to expand the military budget and half of that military budget goes to corporations. So I just don't think that they're making that argument from a good faith place. I think for the folks that are concerned about that from a good a good faith perspective, I think we need to look at the fact that I just saw a report come out. I think it was in the Washington Post that said we've had eight storms that have cost a billion each hit the West Coast of the United States already. And the reality is, is that we can't afford to not make a change. We are on a collision course that is costing lives, is is wreaking havoc and destruction in our community infrastructure. Will continue to have economic impacts and at levels that we can't even really fathom right now. Um, and we're already seeing the evidence of that. That is that is no longer this kind of hypothesis that we should be debating. That is a fact. We are seeing that happen in the you know eight billion that that those storms have already cost us as an example. And so to me, the argument is that we can't afford to not make these real fundamental changes in, in where we're investing our money. And I think that if we're going to have a government that is collecting as many tax dollars as it is from us, that those tax dollars should go into things that actually benefit everyday working families and not to create subsidies for corporations like Amazon. We had subsidies of 8 million here in my own community, my own district for a corporation that put up record profits amidst a global pandemic while people, families were struggling just to eat and keep their housing. So, you know, I think that, that we really need to reframe the way that we talk about what we can afford and what we can't. Well, a lot of the Democrats are suggesting that perhaps when it comes to their own framing or reframing of the 2022 election, some Democrats, and we've seen this with Terry McAuliffe, who's running for governor of Virginia, sort of a purplish state, that um, that Joe Biden is something of a drag right now. Um, you're an army veteran, you saw what happened in Afghanistan. There is this argument that, uh, that the Afghanistan withdrawal was a bit messy, uh, that maybe it showed a certain level of incompetence uh, by the Biden administration. Do you agree with that? I agree that the withdrawal was not handled in a way that truly centered care for the American citizens that were still there, for the Afghan people who saved lives of people like mine, and just for the Afghan people who we justified this war for two decades by saying that we were there to help them. And so I think we have to be willing to be honest about that because if we're not, we can't actually make changes and do better in the future. So I'm grateful that the Biden administration did withdraw. I don't think it was a matter of time. But yes, I think we need to continue to learn from those lessons and do a better job. And I think we need to make things right and invest in real reconciliation and reparations for communities that have been harmed by these wars, including that the nature of this withdrawal, including the family that was killed by yet another drone strike killing civilians on our way out. If we're going to be able to actually engage in a, in the kind of cooperation and collaboration internationally that is gonna that our survival is going to depend on. For Joe Biden and other Democrats, there does seem to be this endless debate about whether the wise politics of the Democratic Party is to move further towards progressive values as you have in terms of expanding Medicare for all and education and opportunities, or whether Democrats should pivot back towards the center in the hopes of winning more purplish states or Republican districts like Staten Island. If Joe Biden was was here and you had an opportunity to explain to him why you think progressivism is working, what would you say to him? I mean, I don't know. I think that this question sidesteps what's actually happening politically. I, to me, when I talk about this, people talk about you know the extremities of different positions, but our conditions right now are extreme. What is the center 
or moderate position when you're starving, when you're struggling to keep a roof over your head. That there's nothing, there's nothing center about starving. And, and that's what we're really talking about when we're talking about actual humans. Is not this kind of red versus blue, left versus right. This is actually about top versus bottom. This is about how do we lead in a way that actually prioritizes care for communities, which is what you're charged with when you're elected to represent communities. Um, and so to me, this question of where should we fall on some spectrum of left versus right that folks have made up sidesteps the very human suffering that is happening in our communities. And to me, the bottom line is how are we gonna address those suffering? <laughs> you know, that's the, the conditions that are causing people to suffer. And how are we gonna build in a, in a way that invests in the, in the transformation that's needed for our future? When I hear you talk about suffering, I think, of course, about the pandemic and COVID-19. And even this, even though this isn't really your sort of a purview as a potential member of Congress, but I'm sure every politician, regardless of their level, is going to be asked about this perhaps over the next couple of months. Once a vaccine is available, FDA approved for children, should it be mandated that kids be vaccinated with a COVID-19 vaccine in order to go to a public school? You know, I think it's really good that we're having public discourse about this. And right now, I'm taking a lot of time to listen to all of the different sides of teachers and parents and students and, you know, all of the different folks in our community right now who have a lot of different important and sometimes contradictory perspectives. So, right now, generally, I think that the government should not be, you know, especially at the federal level, asking these questions of what are we going to force people to do, but how do we really invest in making sure that folks are educated, that we're addressing the real crisis of faith that exists in our media and in our institution because that's the root cause. People are susceptible to all of this misinformation and doubt because they have been lied to by media, by politicians, by so many of these people. And a lot of us, including Democrats, don't want to acknowledge that people have really valid concerns and fears that have for decades built up. And I also think that that speaks to this question of moderatism versus leftism or progressivism is that at the end of the day, if we don't actually start addressing these human needs and moving in a way that is about meeting people's needs, then we are going to continue to see people leave both of the parties and we're gonna continue to lose. And so I think that mandate or not, we just have to be investing in healthcare, wrap around healthcare and wellness investments in our communities. And that's what I'm concerned with. Brittany Ramos de Barros, she is a Democratic candidate for the 11th Congressional District in New York. And as you've just heard, there are a lot of Democrats who are very high on her for reasons that should be obvious. Brittany, thanks so much for doing this, we appreciate it. Thank you so much, David. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Marissa Matthews, Brendan Limer, Asher Caulfield, and the rest of the team at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.